Welcome to Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here for this episode. And we are joined by a special guest, an old friend of mine, and I'm really happy to catch up with him a little bit. But anyway, before we get into the discussion, we're going to introduce ourselves like normal. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've written some books. In the House of Tom Bombadil is my latest book, and I was just made a senior editor of Touchstone Magazine. If you've not read Touchstone, you need to read it. Subscribe to it. Sacrifice your child. (laughs) (laughs) So you can afford it. (laughs) It's actually an affordable magazine. I don't know. I don't know why that just came to me at that moment. But anyway, you've been been reading that. You've been reading Abraham. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) Anyway, kick it over to you, Tom. (laughs) I'm Tom Price. I teach systematic theology and moral theology at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary and a few other places. And I can agree. uh, Touchstone is an excellent. Excellent source. So uh, do do look into it. <laughs> yeah. Don't sacrifice your child. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Glenn, how about you? I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, ministry associated reflections, ministries, and a bunch of other things. My latest book is 32 Christians Who Changed Their World. And we're going to talk with somebody right now who has a book that's just come out. Patrick, great to see you again. Introduce yourself, please. Chris, it's great to see you too, uh, and congratulations on the editorship. I, I hadn't heard that, but I'm, I've known about Touchstone a long time, and uh, it's really yeah, terrific. Thanks. It's in your hands now. Uh, so my name is Patrick Deneen. I am a professor of political theory, pol- political science, but with a f- focus on political theory, uh, and I've been at the University of Notre Dame for 12 years. Uh, before that, and I think when I first got to know Chris, I was at uh, Georgetown University in D.C., uh, and uh, was there for about eight years. Uh, and then before that, my first academic position was at Princeton University. Uh, did my doctoral work at Rutgers University under the late, great Wilson Curry McWilliams and uh, have um, kind of in many ways followed um, followed many of his teachings and instincts uh, and culminating in a book of a few years ago called Why Liberalism Failed, a kind of critique of liberalism not in the conventional sense of that word describing the left part of the American political spectrum, but a philosophical worldview that uh, has elements of the right and the left uh, currently. So that book has kept me busy for the last few years. Yeah, I remember when it came out, it made quite a splash. I think if I recall correctly, Obama even blurbed it. Yeah, it wasn't strictly a blurb. He (laughs) read it um, over, I guess he has a summer reading uh, list a book, well, a book, a list of books that he read over the summer. So the 20, uh, came out in 2018. So in the summer of 2018, after it had been out about six months, you know, sales were starting to flag and interest was, was waning. Suddenly it appeared on, uh, president, former president Obama's summer reading list, uh, with the proviso or, uh, uh mention of the fact that he didn't agree with all of the conclusions, but nevertheless, uh, it, 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 <laughs> but at uh, least he, yeah. he did, he did now. And you know, it's, it's not, not, uh, uh, it, it certainly sparked interest in corners that perhaps hadn't been interested before. Yeah. Well, I remember when you were lecturing at uh, Harvard. I remember I was uh, I, I saw saw you there, and and I, I don't know if I ever thanked you for that that shout out that you gave me. I don't know if you remember that, but when, during the lecture, you 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 mentioned one of my books, mm-hmm. and I pulled out my my smartphone to see the the sales numbers on Amazon. <laughs> but anyway, so that all, was a, that all was, twelve people in the audience. When I <laughs> Actually, it was pretty packed. It was like uh, it, it must was, have been four hundred yeah. people there. Yeah, it was but good, uh, good. and then I noticed uh, too that uh, you know when I went over to the coop, you know they were they had your book prominently on display there. But uh, anyway, uh, that was a uh, uh, kind of a cool event, and great to see those things. It but was. you know, and if I may, I would like to shout out about that book again. It's called uh, "Man of the House," uh, I believe, <laughs> if, the, if I'm getting right. the title right. right. I've given copies of that, so I've purchased at least three. I have a copy in our house, and I've given copies to both of my sons, and they've turned out okay. So thanks, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I need to buy a couple more copies of your book. I've got, I do have a copy. <laughs> I've, I've, I enjoyed reading it. Uh, well, let's get into this thesis a bit, um, because, like you noted, uh, you know, our audience is, is fairly broad. We have, uh, you know, traditionalist Roman Catholics. We've got Orthodox folks, but by and large, it's uh, evangelicals, um, many with a Reformed outlook. 
Uh, and when most folks hear the term liberalism, they think about FDR, they think about John Kennedy, they think about maybe, uh, uh, you know, George McGovern, uh, if they're older, Jimmy Carter, or Obama and Clinton or whatever. But that's not what you're getting at. You're, you're going deeper than that. Can you, can you maybe help uh, our listeners understand just what you're getting at? Yeah, sure. I'm speaking in the uh, of liberalism in the philosophical sense, and so really looking, you could go back to its roots, um, which are not not unrelated, of course, to the Protestant Reformation, mm-hmm. uh, but which um, is articulated in a series of thinkers, especially you know initially in the British tradition. Uh, figures like John Locke would be prominently mentioned. Before him, a, a thinker that's not liberal, who's not liberal, but Thomas Hobbes is the really one of the first thinkers to develop uh, an idea of the state of nature uh, and and, uh, proposes um, a conceptual idea of what human beings are like in their natural condition. So in other words, what do we know to be true about human beings in all times and in all places? And this was always a question that was asked by philosophers. But, but the answer never involved extracting people from any of their actual circumstances and histories and traditions. In some ways, you could say that tr- the broad Western tradition, until f- a figure like Hobbes, understood that it was at least part of our nature to be particular, uh, to be embedded in traditions and places and having inheritances and um, to define ourselves in and through generations and the relationship of people in and through generations this, this tradition then proposes an idea of human beings that the natural way of thinking about human beings, or let's say the normative way of thinking about human beings, is to think of us as sort of unattached, unencumbered, autonomous selves that are not limited by unchosen forms of identity. Now, for Locke, this, of course, was things such as one's religion or one's where one was born or... What, one, what one's parents did so that we were not defined. You know, if your last name was Smith, it didn't destine you to be a Smith any longer as it once would have. Hmm. Uh, so this basic idea of that, f- that the idea of the free human being is someone free not just in a political setting, not just in a, um, we could say, a, a, even a bearer of, of rights, but that the core and essence of freedom consisted in this condition, this conceptual condition of the state of nature is at the deepest level informs the, the, the liberal philosophical tradition that I'm talking about. And this, this tradition was developed, uh, further developed by figures such as John Stuart Mill. It, it informs strands of the American founding, of course. Uh, and part of the argument of that book in 2018 is that this philosophical tradition was never sort of pure in the American setting, but has become more and more the defining way in which people think about the nature of liberty and more and more of our world is shaped around its realization to the point now in which Locke himself wouldn't recognize transgenderism as the fruit of his ideas. And yet you could say as a kind of kernel, as a seed, a kind of, you know, the idea that we're not we're not bound or limited by something we don't choose. Well, that can extend ultimately to our own body, our own sexuality, things that Locke wouldn't have thought that you could change, but that uh, right. the logic uh, points in that direction. Yeah, that's... Yeah, I've argued in, in uh, at least one of my books that whenever a worldview becomes dominant in a culture, it will always lead to whatever its logical or most likely illogical conclusions are. Yeah, and I, th- I think um, in, in given many, enough time, the logical implications will percolate. Yeah, and you know, when we look around the world today and we say, what happened? In many ways, it's really just the kind of ongoing realization of this philosophical belief that had always been limited by a lot of other traditions and sources. So it's a kind of purification of this worldview that I think we're living amid right now. I, I had a quick question because I, I noted, I, I remember, I think we read the book when Chris was still back in Connecticut uh, living here. Um, we read the book as a small group. Is that right, Chris? Uh, his, I think we, we, it we were reading right. it. Yeah. Yeah, and I and I remember one of the things because it was paralleling work I was doing, especially on you know in theology of the human being. And I remember Michael uh, Gillespie's work when I was a student at Duke was very impactful, and he 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 noted. Um, 
a, a similar theme, but fr- fr- from us, you know, he was doing it with kind of history of ideas. But this, th- what noted, I mean, it goes back quite a ways. But what ends up shifting, especially pr- a bit prior to the Reformation, is what he calls a big ontological change, a shift. Um, we have names for it now: voluntarism, nominalism. But he really traces these kind of threads that are are really th- they're all related because they're all part of that shift. And because of that, they end up they end up complementing and contradicting in ways that that keep making things worse. For example, you you note similarly this notion of radical autonomy is going hand in hand with a kind of strict determinism. And he kind of had noted that with the kind of the Cartesian line and the Hobbesian line. Um, and uh, and so. Even the more, well, let's put it this way, the the attempt to become more conservative or more liberal in this setting ends up just playing right into the actual making more, I don't know, more, I don't know the best word for it, but it it makes what seems to be an opposite even more fueled, if you will. So that that the yeah, the mean, government we, the government becomes stronger the more the autonomy yeah takes off yeah I, I know that you you've talked about that a lot Patrick that you know the, the more we atomize the more we kind of fixate on freedom the larger the government tends to get yeah and th- that uh, that argument is of course I'm I'm merely plagiarizing or borrowing. Uh, from insights that uh, that that I think are famously associated and rightly associated with Alexis de Tocqueville in Democracy in America, and it's 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 a, of course these are famous chapters and they're especially beloved by conservatives of at least let's say of more Reagan esque disposition. Um, and I remember, you know, in the 1980s, 1990s, even before that, how much conservatives would always turn to these last chapters of Democracy in America, in which he foretold and prophesied the rise of a tutelary nanny state that would become all-encompassing, would begin to direct our most intimate affairs that would be involved and engaged in every aspect of our lives. And the readers of Tocqueville, at least, they loved those sentences, but they weren't very good readers of Tocqueville as a whole. Because what he argued was that this condition of the rise of the massive tutelary centralized state was the consequence of individualism. It wasn't yeah. so the cure wasn't individualism. It was that was its that was its source. It was its cause. That right. the more atomized we became, the less we could depend upon the mm-hmm. kind of the threads and fabric and webs of human relationships that you know begin with the family and pervade out into the neighborhood, the church, the community, the more we would become reliant on some entity that would promise to take care of us. And in this famous chapter called The Rise of Democratic Despotism, he notes that this is a form of despotism that's unlike any other form of despotism that's ever existed because it's not imposed by a kind of despot or a tyrant upon a a recalcitrant population. It's actually invited by the yeah, population welcome, yeah. that has no that has no yeah. other recourse, and and so it's right. a it's a brilliant insight I think by Tocqueville, but which was, you know, kind of lost in translation as it were. Or or to to go back to what Thomas had said, it was put into the paradigm of liberalism, and so right. even though the words on the page said the source of this is individualism, the liberal reading this would say ah the cure is liberalism. <laughs> you can never have too much liberalism. <laughs> it's, it, it does tend to be the, the cure of the disease that's you know, doing yeah. you in. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Or at least so that's the belief of those who are liberals. So the, the, basically what we're looking at is, is basically forms of liberalism that are in our political environment today. You know, uh, maybe uh, a liberalism that maybe places more stress on the choices of the individual, and then maybe another form of liberalism that places more stress on the tutelary characteristics of the state. But either way you go, you know, you end up kind of with this mutually reinforcing or just this overarching framework that you just can't seem to break out of. Yeah, and in fact, I think maybe this was one of the things that caused a lot of people to read my book and at least like half of it. Uh, and almost everyone came away liking at least half of it and hating half of it. It was just the, op- it was the opposite halves t- typically. Um, right, so the parts right. that, that Obama liked were, were disliked by many conservatives. But, the, but you're right about this, Chris, that the, uh, what we think of as or what we've 
thought of as the as the fundamental political divide of American politics of the last 50 years, and maybe until quite recent times, was a divide between a kind of more libertarian right, which we call conservative, but which is really misnamed. It's it's really, yeah. it, 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 or let's say it has elements in it or strands in it that are conservative, but it's, it's dominant. Mm-hmm. One of its dominant features was, was its libertarianism, especially in respect mm-hmm. to uh, to, to the economy. And then we had this progressive um, element or kind of the left side, which we call liberal, but which is really progressivism coming out of a different strand of, of the liberal tradition, more, more, um, more of the continental tradition associated with Rousseau or Kant um, or, or Hegel, uh, which held the position that in order to become truly free and autonomous, there had to be assistance from, from the state, that the state played a role in bringing us to the condition that the classical liberal or what we call conservative tradition thought would exist if we got rid of government. So it, was, it wasn't a debate over the value of autonomy. It was simply a debate over the means by which autonomy yeah. would be achieved. Hmm. And so progressive liberals were much friendlier to the state, especially in equalizing or making more equal the economic realm but with the purpose and end of creating more autonomy for individuals as a result of that equality, but also seeing and being very deeply suspicious of the inequalities that existed as a result of civil society, the family, church, community, and so forth, and becoming very aggressive and increasingly using state power to liberate people, in their view, from the oppressions and from the backwardness and from the limitations of those kinds of bonds and relationships, why we've seen now this kind of radical turn in the political left of using state authority to go after, you know, liberating children who might be trapped in the wrong body or liberating <laughs> people from their churches and so forth. And again, this is the logic. But what I really want to underscore is that there's really a fundamental agreement in these two, in this division, in the two parties of this division. And one of the arguments of the book was that while we have tended to think our politics has been a kind of oscillation from one to the other, I think when you look at it really broadly, what you see is both were winning. Both were winning in their area of liberalism. So the conservatives were not preserving family values and local values. They were losing to the liberal part of the left. And the progressive liberals weren't winning in the economic realm. They were they were losing to globalization and they were losing to mass immigration. They were losing to all those issues. And so what's striking about what happened, of course, in 2016 with Brexit and with the election of Donald Trump is it was a kind of almost a, a reaction of the body politic, uh, allergic <laughs> reaction to this extreme liberalism in both forms. Right. Uh, yeah, both right. the economic libertarianism, yeah. so it was rejection of open borders and NAFTA and, uh, you know, kind of the outsourcing of manufacturing and deindustrialization. But, of course, it was also rejection of the progressive move toward the woke agenda and so forth. And this is why you get this reaction from the liberal uniparty mm-hmm. that coalesced in its deep right. and profound opposition to Trump, which – they want to say is just Trump, but of course it's actually about maintaining the regime. It's actually yeah. at a deep, it's Trump is kind of the secondary cause, or let's say the secondary feature, the, the sort of symptom of this. Right. The actual cause was was the reaction against liberalism and the effort of the kind of, you could say, the uniparty to reassert its its uh, its preferred regime. Yeah. So, Glenn, you had something there? One, one of the things that I find really useful, just sort of on a personal level, about your thesis is I have watched over the last, I don't know how many years, a weird combination of an insistence on personal autonomy, particularly in sexual areas, uh, enforced by government coercion. And uh, understanding how you can go with this idea of complete uninhibited freedom and rely on on the government to stomp on anybody who questions what you're doing, uh, that combination always struck me as being sort of irrational. But I think you've got them put together in a in a you know in a a pretty you've got a pretty good explanation of where that comes from. 
Um, I'm that, that that was personally, like I said, really helpful to me. So not only that, and of course, at the time I wrote the book, this wasn't as even as evident to me, but um, but it certainly flows from some of these theses. I think it also helps to explain this, the wedding, as it were, between corporations yeah. and the sexual agenda. In other words, the the two worlds that we thought were opposites, economic yeah. libertarianism and freedom yeah. and the sexual yeah. revolution, have actually you know coalesced now. Uh, yeah. In this very yeah. striking, remarkable, and also very powerful movement. So you you mentioned yeah. uh, Glenn. You mentioned the government. I think we also, in the same breath, we have to mention that very powerful force that these you know economic entities, and not just economic entities, you know things like you know NASCAR and NCAA, and you know things that right. really yeah. shape how people perceive the world. And you can't watch. I mean, it's amazing yeah. to me now. You can't watch a football game now without being yeah. just inundated. By the, by the kinds of commercials that are advancing this revolutionary agenda, which comports with the revolutionary nature of modern capitalism, of the modern right, marketplace. Right. Well, yeah. I, you know, uh, Alan Carlson, who we both know, he, he made a point uh, that really struck me a few years ago uh, related to feminism and the fact that big business has always been supportive of the feminist sort of economic agenda, uh, freeing women up so that they can become parts of corporate, you know, you know, uh, environments. And we all know that there are lots of very talented gals out there who can do great work in big corporations. And, and that talent was something that, you know, big businesses has profited from, um, households have suffered, but we're not thinking about those much these days. Yeah, and of course, it also has the consequence of, we, we can see this, it, it reduces the number of men and women who marry. It reduces mm -hmm. the number of children being born. So it has the beneficial consequence, if you want to call it that, for from the corporate standpoint of increasing the number of homes. So you get, rather yeah. than yeah. a husband and a wife buying you know, one dishwasher. Now suddenly you're selling two dishwashers uh, right. for for two you know uh, two singles or a single uh, you know a single parent home. Uh, so right. it it actually turns out to be economically beneficial to destroy the social fabric of the country, at least in the short term. I think. Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure it's a very good long term strategy. <laughs> well, well, also, so, yeah. just consider the impact on wages. If you suddenly double the workforce, what happens to wages? Yes. You know. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, and then if you stop having children, then you can import more immigrant labor as well. So yeah, right, it's right, it's right. a sort of genius uh, uh, economic strategy again as a short-term strategy. I think, right. um, uh, but Tom, you had something there. Yes, yeah, something connected to what we were just talking about. And I think you, if I if I recall right, you you talk a lot a significant amount of this even in in the book we've been talking about is the way in which the corporate world. Be, uh, almost combines with the political world and and bringing forth a kind of almost a common agenda that they're all benefiting from, but it, it actually creates in the population a, a lot of pressure to conform on the one level, but also the, the almost giving up to resist. It's almost as though this stuff is everywhere. They 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 create kind of a you know, a, a kind of pseudo masses, if you will. They make you think that this is the way everyone thinks and feels. And so it becomes a rare thing almost to bump up for, you know, against somebody who, who actually doesn't agree with that picture of things. It's in every film, it's in every advertisement, or, or at least every other. Um, so there is a way in which this technology now coming through these huge vehicles um, really does almost create a sense of the present that is radically, as I think you talked about, disconnected from the past and creates a bizarre relationship to the future. Yeah, that's that's right. It, uh, you know, on the one hand, it, what you're describing is again to go back to Tocqueville. Tocqueville described how strong public opinion would be in shaping the worldview of the citizens of a mass democracy, of course, famously described this as the tyranny of the majority, hmm. in which even if you didn't necessarily agree with what you perceived the majority to be, yeah. you would sort of keep your, you know, keep your counsel. You would stay yeah, quiet. Yeah. Right. And to the point where what was perceived to be the majority wasn't even necessarily majority. 
It yeah. could just be a very vocal minority or very powerful minor- minority that would give the appearance that this is what everyone thinks. You know, yeah. you can't think otherwise. And I think, of course, we've all been going through this world in which yeah. you, know, you, you whisper to somebody in a bar, you know, did you did you agree with what <laughs> they say about COVID? No, but don't let anybody hear us. You know, right. uh, so th- it's. It's it's enough just to have the perception that there's this yeah. massive faceless majority. Now, here's a really interesting, um, really interesting sort of fact from the world of political theory. Uh, John Stuart Mill read Tocqueville and actually reviewed, wrote an early review of Democracy in America. He loved it, and he loved especially this passage. Of course, Mill wrote uh, later wrote on Liberty, which is all in many ways about this. Now, Mill agreed with Tocqueville. To this extent, that that sort of democratic public opinion was a great threat to our capacity to think for ourselves, to think clearly about what it was that we thought the majority said and to be able to resist it. But here's what Tocqueville, Tocqueville said that the way to resist the tyranny of the majority is to make sure you're talking to other people, is to make sure like mm. whatever you think you thought the majority was is in fact can be – in many ways, revealed to be nothing more than a paper tiger when you begin to have conversations with, again, members of your family right. or, or members of your community or or your church community. And you begin to find strength in the fact, well, if it's such a big majority, why is it that so many people mm-hmm. that I respect and like agree with me and now I have some source of strength to kind of stand up against this? Well, John Stuart Mill who admired Tocqueville's analysis, mm-hmm. reached the opposite conclusion, which is that the mm-hmm. way to resist the majority and turn the majority was to be an individual, was to be a kind mm-hmm. of an individual self. Mm-hmm. And again, I think Mill's analysis in some ways has made, <laughs> for the liberal, yeah. has made the situation worse right. because he arrives at a liberal recommendation that um, – I think again leaves us in a condition of relative weakness uh, when when we are faced with what we think is a large faceless majority. Yeah, this this is a good point to maybe transition to regime change because you know uh, when guys like us get together, you know we have a lot of fun uh, picking someone to blame. <laughs> Is it Rousseau? Is it Mill? You know, is it? It's always it Rousseau. <laughs> it's always Rousseau. <laughs> is it? Is it the nominalists? You know, who 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 would we uh, get the Terminator to go back in time to wipe out if we could? If we could. Uh, but here we are. So one of the things you know you've done, uh, Patrick, is you know you're you're part of a Substack, post liberal. I think that's the name of it. Yeah, post liberal order. So yeah, so we have different ways of talking about kind of uh, an outlook that takes us beyond this or maybe takes us back to something. Here, here's a thought. You know, like, you know, like I'll, I'll describe myself uh, sometimes as paleoconservative. Mm-hmm. Um, but at other times I'll talk about myself as um, post-liberal. Um, what are some ways to think about how we get beyond this? Um uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I know it's something you think a lot about, uh, but you know, seems as though we can't just begin with the individual, right? At least, sure. Yeah. Well, that that seems from everything I've been saying, that would be probably a bad idea uh, to <laughs> conclude that well, the answer lies in you know we all become Robinson Crusoe. <laughs> um, so I think you know, in some ways, so the the, the term post liberal, and it's in the subtitle of the new book, toward a post liberal future. The term has been around for quite a while, and I'm sure you all know it's actually it's a term that really originates in theological circles. It's mm-hmm. uh, I think especially associated with theologians in Britain. It was just, I was just there last week. I uh, had an event where John Milbank attended. Um, oh yeah, one of his, yeah. Speaking one of, his, of the yeah. radical orthodoxy yeah. people, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So it actually is associated with radical orthodoxy. Milbank. Kind of one of the figures at yeah, the Lynn center of that. Ben, I think Lynn Beck um, and Yale did, yeah. Yes, too. Yes, that's right. So it's it actually its roots, um, at least as a term, and I also think conceptually, in a lot of ways, comes out of the comes out of the theological circles in the theological world. Now, figures like Milbank um, have written about it in a more political register. In fact, um, John Milbank, along with um, 
uh, one of his students named Adrian Pabst, also a British mm -hmm. professor, yeah. but a British pr professor of politics, uh, wrote a book about yeah. this um, uh, around these themes several years ago that's quite good. Uh, so it's not the, – the phrase isn't necessarily new, but maybe it's new relative – it sounds new in sort of American political circles. Mm -hmm. And you know, maybe it worries people more than it should because it does have this pedigree that I think it's not just made up. Um, but I, I think it, it signals a couple things. It signals, first of all, that it's, it's not a, uh, those who – for all the differences that define people who might say they're post-liberal – it's not an argument for sort of a nostalgic going back. You can't mm -hmm. go back to some period. You can't say, okay, let's just recreate the 1950s. Mm -hmm. It really does have to recognize that we've gone through this, this fairly revolutionary period of human history called liberalism. And it is, I think we really do have to understand that it's revolutionary. And I have critics of this book who really take uh, umbrage at the at the title like how can you say regime change do you approve of january 6th are you some kind of radical do you want to overthrow the government and the first my first response is we've just gone through a regime change in right. my lifetime we've gone through a regime change there's right. anyone who thinks that this is some kind of a radical crazy idea just look around you and look right. at the world that's been born in the last 10 five years yeah uh, we have undergone a regime change. And what I mean by regime in this case is not the Constitution. It's not even the government. It, of course, would include those things. But that's much too limiting. That regime is really the kind of entire way of life or its deepest underpinnings. Going back to the first part of our conversation, to think that the nature of political, social, economic, even theological order is about realizing the individual, the autonomous individual self, the self-making self. So to undergo a regime change as we have uh, is in the first instance to recognize we have gone through something that you can't, you know, you can't unremember. <laughs> you can't, you can't yeah, pretend yeah. it didn't happen. Uh, but the, but the post, so the post part indicates that the lib, the liberal part indicates that you can't go back and pretend, for example, that, um, you know, go back to a conversation we were having earlier. Um, you know, all, all women will go back into the home. They'll be barefoot and pregnant and have 12 children. And um, uh, the man will be the sole breadwinner. And that's, that's what post-liberalism is, post is going to look like. I mean, that's just not only is that preposterous, but it's, I think, we would all, all acknowledge, I think, we would all acknowledge that's a ridiculous idea that, that, uh, that, that it's been, there's been a positive gain in some senses from women being able to realize their own vocations. And what post-liberalism really begins to look at, how do we build a society in which men and women, which families and which communities can be oriented to the goods of human beings that allow us to flourish while recognizing also there are genuine benefits that have arisen as the result of you know aspects of modern technology and aspects of modern science and and some of you know some of the changes not necessarily all of the changes but some of the changes we've undergone so it requires a degree of judgment and consideration and reflection and kind of we need to deliberate about these things so but but not just to simply say the cure for the problems of liberalism is more liberalism which is the the right. kind of the treadmill we have been stuck on it seems like there is also an institutional uh, sort of feature to the to this in the sense that okay um, we live in a world that is ordered in a very different way than the world that uh, our the founders of our country in, uh, knew um, multinational corporations, for example, mm -hmm. uh, instantaneous communication virtually around the world, uh, global mm -hmm. markets, these, these things, uh, it strikes me that, uh, you know, you brought up mill earlier experiments and living, mm -hmm. <laughs> you my, know, favorite, his, my favorite phrase, <laughs> his, his notion was, was, you know, with it, with his experiments, uh, to isolate people more and more, uh, at the same time as sort of entrust, well, yeah, being utilitarian, he did have a, a social view, but it was, but it was almost mechanistic. Um, yeah, it lacked the kind of metaphysical, spiritual character that I think we we know human beings uh, constitute human nature, and you you know we impoverish ourselves as, uh, if we try to become me mechanisms. But what are your thoughts on how do we how do we preserve the best of the present? 
while holding on to the best of the past. I mean, that seems to me mm-hmm. to be the challenge of the sure. day. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, I've, I have a formula right here. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really easy. It's, it's. I don't know why nobody discovered it before. It's very simple. Much, much easier than. That's usually how. Fermat's last theorem. It's <laughs> right under this piece of paper. Um, well, I think in the first instance. Um, I guess I'll, I haven't mentioned Aristotle's name yet, so I'll mention Aristotle's yeah, name. Yeah, let's bring up that was, guy. Well, I, you know, I, know I'm among, I'm, I know I'm among the Reformed here, so i got to be careful. But, uh, <laughs> we like Aristotle. We've got a Thomas Reformed guy. Good. We're in a better place. It's <laughs> good. I'm feeling, feeling more at home. Uh, <laughs> Of course, Aristotle in the in the very beginning, his first sentence, if not first two or three sentences in, in the Nicomachean Ethics, says that every action aims at an end. Every action aims at a purpose, uh, and every action that is not the final action is takes part of, or I think he would say ought to take part of, ultimately at aiming at that final end. Now, the, maybe the, the f- one of the fundamental features of liberalism, to go back to the earlier definition, if, if the aim and purpose of the liberal order is to allow for the realization of our individual selves, then this denies that there is any shared end or purpose, or we could say any, any end or purpose that's common to human beings. Therefore, it denies the idea that there's a common good, right? This is the, the fundamental yeah. core presupposition and why a liberal society no longer can speak in terms of the common good. Because it denies that there is one. If there is one, it means that we're not as free as we thought we were. We don't get yeah. to make up what our own end is. Yeah. The first the first aspect of a post-liberal order would be to reject this liberal view. So in this sense, it would be a kind of recovery. And so this is this is a way in which without, I hope, without being nostalgic, it would be a recovery of a classical teaching. But you would have to you would have to begin to to evaluate and discuss what the what this good, this common good is in ways that we can recognize in the contemporary circumstance. It wouldn't be framed in Aristotle's terms per se. One thing that we know, uh, and it seems to me here's where my my field of political science, sociology, and so forth, we have a lot of data uh, about what what allows for human flourishing. So this is where basic common sense would tell us certain things, like growing up in a good family with a mom and dad is a good thing. Growing up in a strong community in which you know your neighbors, that's a good thing. You know, believing in God and going to worship, that's a good thing. But you can't make those arguments anymore unless you have the data. Well, we have a lot of data now, and it turns out that all of those things that we understood to be common sense nature, to be the nature of the good for human beings, is actually objectively good. It actually, we have lots of measures of ways. Just Let's just begin with what are your prospects of having a flourishing life as a human being uh, in your in your economic life, in your making a living, having a job, keeping a job, um, staying out of trouble, not getting into crime, not getting addicted to bad stuff, um, not not becoming so depressed and despairing that you take your life, not getting addicted to opioids and so forth. Well, it turns <laughs> yes. out growing up in a family with a mom and a dad really makes a huge difference. It's not yep. rocket science. So I, I was kind of semi-kidding when I said it's an easy thing, but it is – it is kind of easy uh, that yeah. there are certain things we know to be true. So here's where we would have to begin to say, going back to now to your question, well, what do we keep from the past? What do we what do we embrace that's new? What can make more possible human beings? Let's take this example to live in a in a solid, good family, and especially in a world in which we can't just count on families forming as easily as they did. In an earlier age, in an earlier age, it just seemed to be easy. You know, boy and a girl meet each other, get married, have kids, and that's it. Now it's much harder because you know you, you get debt in college. You it takes you much longer to to kind of establish a career. Of course, to be able to buy a house now is virtually impossible. There's all these <laughs> obstacles. So here's where, for the classical liberal or so-called conservative, they value family values. They say, but they hate the idea that government doing anything. Well, what if we actually need now to kind of move into a post-liberal future where to pursue the thing you claim you really care about, which is people being able to form families, we may need to actually have some forms of public policy that help people, 
that help young people especially, and that allow them to form the thing that used to be a lot easier in a different age. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and and this this seems to me is sort of post-liberal. This is one example of a post-liberal because it, it's it's drawing on a pre-liberal understanding of the human good and, and what the common good is and what human flourishing is, but it's recognizing very different circumstances, and we can't rely on the old answers. So just to be a kind of contemporary conservative, says, so let's look at what the founding fathers say. I have a lot of respect for the founding fathers, but we're not going to find the answers to these problems in the pages of the Federalist Papers. So, I, And I think if we begin to just push these sets of considerations out to all, in all kinds of spheres of life, we can begin to come up with lots of different answers that really move beyond the rutted, you know, just now increasingly unworkable liberal right. solutions to these problems, whether it's left liberal or right liberal. Yeah. Right, right. Would you like to establish a privatized banking system that will help you separate from the mainstream banks and get more control over your money? Join a growing community of families, business owners, pastors and churches, yes, even churches, that are learning to establish and manage a privatized banking system and enjoy the safety of guaranteed tax-free growth perpetuated by the amazing power of uninterrupted compound interest. Don't wait for the next crash. Contact Private Family Banking. They are here to help fuel the future of the family and the church with multi-generational wealth building. See our contact information in the show notes below or just email us at banking at privatefamilybanking.com. So are there any, you know, we've had connections with the Front Porch Republic guys over the years. That's a great, great bunch yeah, of folks. I'm going there this weekend to the conference up in Oh, nice. All oh, right. Well, yeah, yeah that's yeah. great. Yeah. Um, when it comes to those guys, you know, uh, they're about local kind of small scale uh, initiatives. Are, are there anything, are there things out there that you've seen, Patrick, that you can like say, I, I like what's going on over there and uh, this is kind of getting at what we need to do. Yeah. So I, I, I remain deeply committed to the Front Porch Republic ethos uh, and to, you know, I'm, I spent years writing for that project and, and I'm still very much committed to the idea of localism. But I'm, as a, as a, particularly as a Roman Catholic uh, and as someone, again, I think steeped in this Aristotelian Thomistic tradition, um, the localism is, becomes a problem when it doesn't recognize the limits of localism. In other words, any ism that doesn't recognize its own limitations is a problem. Uh, and right. that's true of communism and capitalism and, you know, you run through the, ram you know, the, the, the gamut of isms. Uh, I wrote a I wrote a piece in Front Porch Republic quite a few years ago now that actually caused a bit of a brouhaha with some of my fellow authors in which I said, we now live in a time in which to be a localist means you also have to be, um, uh, you also have to consider the ways that the, let's say, more central government, the state, has to assist localities. Uh, and and a number of my my fellow writers, I won't name names, but uh, uh, one of them had a hopes for a political career. He he thought this was a terrible thing to publish. I think and I, I can think guess it, some names. I, I think it was. Yeah, you probably could. So I think it was withdrawn. I, I think it, I think it was taken down. Um, wow. And I didn't want to have a big fight over it. But it's still something. It's a view that I hold, and it, it's kind of interesting because uh, I was reading an essay by the figure that really was the sort of, you could say, the spiritual philosophical father of the Front Porch Republic, Wendell Berry. It's a somewhat more recent essay that he wrote in one of his more recent books. And he talks about how his hometown or the town he grew up in or the town, maybe it was the county seat of the, uh, of, of the county uh, in which he grew up in, and how the, uh, he actually goes through a list of all of the stores and the businesses that were in that town. It's actually an astonishing list. If I knew you were going to ask me this question, I would have had it with me, and I could have just rattled it off. It's like eight grocery stores, ten you know dry goods stores, you know fifteen you know department. I don't know. It was just it's this amazing list of uh, just small family-owned businesses that were in this really relatively small town in Kentucky. And he goes on to say that the, these businesses and this town flourished, especially because of some of the policies that supported tobacco farming that came out of the New Deal. 
so subsidies and price, you know, price subsidies, as well as kind of constraining some of the market competition that allowed tobacco farmers, this was a tobacco region of Kentucky, allowed tobacco farmers to make a living and a kind of predictable living every year so there wasn't boom and bust in, in, in the crops. And what, what Barry was acknowledging there without saying it in so many words was that the thriving localism that of which he is the you know the paragon the, the great defender of localism flourished especially at that time because of a certain amount of assistance economic assistance it received with, with you know farmers who were doing work it wasn't just you know, it wasn't welfare it was just to make sure that that in an area of our economic life where markets don't work really well uh, that people were able to have flourishing economic lives and that it actually translated into a fantastic flowering of this local life. And here again, I'm not saying that there's a magic formula for what this would look like, but I do think we do know some things. Uh, a few years ago at Front Porch Republic Conference, a wonderful thinker, author, a guy named Chuck Marone. And if you haven't had him on. Oh, I remember Chuck, you, yeah. Yeah, Chuck gave a wonderful talk, uh, someone you should have on. He, he wrote a book called Strong Towns. And it's about how to build strong strong towns, how to build strong localities. Literally, literally how to build them, how to in some ways plan them, or how not to plan them. The mm -hmm. kinds of decisions that go into um, making localities that people want to be in, that when they walk in the downtown, they say, this is really nice, this is really charming, as opposed to ones that you just want to drive through as fast as possible to get out of them. And among the things that Chuck would certainly recognize and even uh, acknowledges in his writing, that there's always roles to be played, for example, for uh, in terms of state and federal funding, because localities cannot afford the kind of infrastructure work uh, that's required uh, in, in in some of these smaller locations. The question then isn't whether there's going to be federal funding or state funding. That's going to happen. The question is, is it going to be spent well? And is it right. going to be well done for, again, for the ends that we have to have in our minds? What are the What is the end, the good that we want to achieve? Now, if you have one party that really loves spending money, government money, but has a terrible if uh, has a terrible idea about the end, which is basically liberal, and then you have another party which maybe does care about things like families and strong churches and so forth, but is has is allergic to the idea of any kind of government, you know, central government intervention in things. We, you know, we're we're in a we're just in an impossible situation. And, and here again, I think to break through this, we need to be thinking in this kind of post-liberal paradigm. Yeah, I think you know it, your your statement concerning it just is a fact that state and federal uh, governments are going to be involved, and they already are. I mean, there is a kind of yeah. default uh, or or philosophy. Uh, or maybe even a vision of the future that's informing it. You know, we think about the inter the interstate highway system. Yeah, right. You know, something that was uh, has transformed the country uh, in lots of ways. Uh, Eisenhower's dream for the you know rapid deployment of troops mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. was behind that. But then you know, you think about just um, the fact that uh, towns. Uh, zone in such a yeah. way so as to almost encourage big box yes. stores. They do. They do. And so but this is a case in point where the answer isn't um, that there will be no zoning. Right. <laughs> the, the answer is that there's yeah. good zoning. Uh, and among other things, uh, while you know there's a lot of space and room for, for debate over these things and there are going to be trade-offs uh, to – and this goes back to stuff that actually Front Porch Republic was really good on um, when I was writing for it, uh, which was uh, a kind of Chesterton Belloc awareness that concentrations of power are to be um, regarded with a degree of suspicion, whether they are concentrations in power uh, politically or economically. Mm -hmm. And the... I would say here again the sort of the liberal divide <laughs> has uh, uh, between left and right has ended up making that suspicion only um, one-sided on the part of each party so that the, 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 the right liberal party is suspicious of state power and the left uh, liberal party is suspicious of corporate power. 
And what Belloc and Chesterton were really aware of was that in, in some ways you have to be really suspicious of both, but you're not going to prevent the economic concentration of power without some good exercise of political power. It doesn't have to be massively concentrated, but you're going to need good, smart forms of public legislation to prevent the, you know, the kind of basically effective monopolies that are very likely and indeed almost inevitable to occur will, will want to be affected by economic actors. Right? Every economic actor wants to have no competition. That's the, that's the dream yeah. scenario. We're back sort to of, kind of late 19th century, early 20th yeah. century trust busting. Right. And so <laughs> what do we have now? We have a whole bunch of effective monopolies, uh, right. whether it's in the tech sphere, but even beyond the tech sphere. You know, in the yeah, if if the, I can give a nice yeah. concrete example. Sure. Uh, I got my doctorate at the University of Wisconsin, uh, which, as you are probably aware, is located in, in the People's Republic of Madison. And um, it, it is an extraordinarily liberal town. And when I was there, State Street, which runs from the campus straight up to the Capitol, had all kinds of quirky, little, fun, interesting shops locally owned. When I went back, it, all of those little, quirky, locally owned stores had been replaced by massive chains. Mm -hmm. Starbucks. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Among other things. I mean, so, and, and I remember thinking how weird this was from my perspective at that point, which is what you're telling me helps explain a lot of this. But um, I remember thinking how weird it was that in a city that is as, um, as liberal and, you know, with a student body there that is so, um, uh, you know, you would think they would be anti-corporate. And yet what you saw was big corporations taking over State Street. And as near as I can tell, nobody seemed to mind. Do you think, Glenn, that, 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 that kind of the sexual revolution is sort of a bribe? It, you know what I'm getting at? So basically, we'll give, you, we'll give you this stuff that you want, but <laughs> uh, it comes at this cost. Mm -hmm. um, local control... Um, uh, small-scale ownership, those things have to be cashed in. But you get to uh, sleep around. Uh, you get to Parade redefine your, yourself. Your, yeah. Uh, yeah, create yourself. Yeah. So just a thought. Well, you know, Chris, this is, this is now Deneen Nip <laughs> topic. <laughs> and this, I mean, this is actually a pretty sustained theme in, in my last book, uh, Regime Change, which is um, – at least in the first part of the book, this is the part of the book that that uh, more conservatives uh, uh, readers liked. Not they didn't necessarily like the latter part of the book. So I'm always offending everyone, but the but the first. <laughs> so we love you, Patrick. Part, I, I appreciate that. It's not everywhere. Don't feel the it's love like everywhere. Post liberalism but, does uh, right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, I know I'm. I know I'm on the mark. <laughs> it's either that I'm just dislikable. Uh, but no, but the first part of the book is really focuses on precisely what I see as the really distinctive quality of the ruling class today, what you know, what generally people like to call the elite, um, which everyone even in the elite uh, denounces. <laughs> <laughs> but, but which in fact is in fact a class, and it is a trans-party uh, class. It doesn't. It's not right. Republican or or Democratic. It's not left or right. But it shares certain features and certain qualities. And among those qualities is the, um, and this is especially a mark of the ruling class, uh, in as much as the ruling class is increasingly a left leftward ruling class, which I think is really quite visible. It's maybe the first ruling class in human history that thinks that it's egalitarian and <laughs> thinks, in fact, that um, it may even be oppressed. Uh, that, it is, um, that, that its its key feature is a keen commitment to egalitarianism that it knows because it is an oppressed class and <laughs> it needs to overthrow the oppressor class, which are primarily white rural you know, Americans who live in the heartland. That's the oppressor class. This is, I mean, it's a, a kind of really, you know, Marx would marvel at the, yeah, the right. genius of this, <laughs> of this, you know, the devising this particular form of the ruling class because it is, it's, on the one hand, you could say it's, uh, at least among some, I think, in this class, they're quite aware of the kind of mental manipulation that's being done here. But I would say 95% of it or more 
is completely unaware of this. Uh, is, yeah. is in yeah. fact buys into this almost kind of self-deception and um, uh, hmm. you know, dare I say, form of false consciousness, uh, yeah. which, <laughs> which now is affects yeah. the ruling class. Uh, yeah. Is that uh, uh, that that I think this is one of the defining features of our ruling class today. It, it, do you think that's what's behind the war on farmers in places like the Netherlands and other parts of Europe? I think there's no doubt. I mean, I think the war on the farmers, it's it's. You could say it's pervasive um, that the the businesses and the way of life that that are, that are approved for elimination all involve the you could say ways of life, forms of work uh, that are regarded as producing backward thinking people uh, and 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 need to be eliminated. You know, ideally through some kind of automation or you know, in this case, farming through. Hmm. genetic modification and so forth. But but it leads to what Chris was saying earlier, which is now this very bizarre circumstance in which the left, which has historically, the left has been historically the class that is most opposed to certain forms of economic power, becoming absolutely uh, just, just, you know, in love with, <laughs> close to being yeah. in love with, Certain corporate actors and certain economic actors, so long as they express and reinforce the idea that the ruling class is of this precise nature. And, you know, the primary example that I turn to in thinking about this is what happened here in Indiana when I first moved here, when Indiana, the state, um, passed um, a Religious Freedom Restoration Act in, in the year 2015. And if you were paying attention to this, you saw the most remarkable, most remarkable thing in which the big corporations that especially are in Indianapolis and have a have a very strong say in in state policy uh, because of the amount of money they bring in or tourism and so forth, they essentially forced the Indiana state government to overturn to to reverse that legislation uh, of re religious freedom restoration. It was a bill that Mike Pence had, had signed into law, and Mike Pence and the legislature backed down and passed essentially the opposite act. Right. And if you remember right. this, it was a remarkable moment because the left was just absolutely ecstatic about this. And this, they were what they were ecstatic about was corporations reversing a democratically yeah. legitimate form of legislation. You know, so when I hear you know people on the left talking about how our democracy is under threat, I say, where were you in 2015? Right. Why didn't you have yeah, a word yeah. to say about that? Right. In fact, there was a New York Times editorial that was written by Frank Bruni in which he, he, the title of which was called The Sunny Side of Greed. He said, this mm -hmm. is a great, this is an instance in which corporations are really good. Mm -hmm. so, so this is the, you know, again, Chris, what you were saying earlier, it seems that this is the way in which, one of the ways in which the um, this self-understanding of today's ruling class is a, a kind of, almost a form of self-deception, but which operates at this level of, uh, of reinforcing the ruling class's belief that it is un, without any doubt or challenge that it is thoroughly legitimate because it is the egalitarian yeah. class. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, part of what was underlay, what, what underlay 2016, both in England and the United States, and what's, what's really happening also in the populist uprisings around the world today is saying this is not legitimate. This is your your claim to yeah. rule is not a legitimate claim to rule, and this is why our politics, or at least one of the reasons why our politics now isn't just, you know, it's not about you know marginal tax rates, it's about the question of legit legitimacy. Is this a right. legitimate ruling class? Yeah, yeah. So, um, what what are you working on? We're getting kind of to the time where we would like to wrap things up, Patrick. What where are you kind of going with some of your work? Uh, these days, so you know, you've got after liberalism failed, you know, regime change. Any, anything you're working on, you want to talk a little bit about? Chris, I hate this question because I just finished a book and I <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a softball give me a, give me a little break. I know. I guess I'm blessed because I have lots of different things I'd like to work on. I have to kind of figure out what I really want to spend the next year or two working on. I, I am thinking, I, you know, a lot of people right now are, of course, thinking about AI and, and modern mm -hmm. technology. And this, this is a little bit of a throwback to when I was writing for Front Porch Republic and, and those years. And I, I began writing a series of essays and, and um, 
some of the online posts there, in which I began trying to draw some connections between what a liberal arts education is in relationship to modern technology. Uh, and I think, I still think it's the case that an awful lot of the kind of discourse, both on both these topics, don't really talk to each other. Mm. That you have a lot of, you know, a lot of people who write about what what's valuable about liberal arts education, which is still kind of, you know, in many ways, articulations, rearticulations of what's good about, you know, critical thinking or encountering classic texts or, you know, how it how it allows you to develop your mind. Lots of lot, all of which is true. And then there's lots of discourse about technology from the lens of somebody thinking about technology. But I, I think that these two domains need to be put into greater conversation with each other because what we're really confronting is the question of what it is to be a human being mm-hmm. and whether it's a good thing to be a human being, whether, yeah. there's a, whether there's a reason to defend what a human is. And that has always been the core, it seems to me at least, the core of the topic and the subject of what the great liberal arts tradition is, which is really the question of what it is to be a human being. Right? Chris, you might know if you, if you uh, did, did a deep enough dive on my some of my work before these last two books. Uh, my first book, my dissertation, was on Homer's Odyssey, and hmm. and how and how I read Homer's Odyssey, and I think why it remains the core text, one of the core texts of our tradition, and maybe even begins our tradition, is that entire text is is really is really centered on the question of what is what is a human being, especially mm-hmm. in a world in which there are constant temptations either to become less than a human in the form yeah. of, a, of a beast or more yeah. than human in the form of a god. Yeah. And it's it's human to want to be tempted by both of these. And that's one mm-hmm. of the things sort of Odysseus teaches yeah. us. It's it's not yeah. it's not a betrayal of our humanity to be tempted by the bestial, nor is it a betrayal of our humanity to be tempted by the divine, to become like a divine, to become like divinity. But there are kind of, we have these very undefined boundaries of beyond which you've ceased to be a human. And I think mm-hmm. this tradition that we have actually is going to become incredibly relevant in, yeah. in the yeah. coming it, it already is of course but it's right. going to become more relevant in coming years yeah well, that's fascinating stuff Patrick um, as we're wrapping up is um, there anything that you want to tell folks about in terms of uh, how to follow you anywhere or kind of keep up with your work Sure. Well, I, I do have a social media uh, site, or I, uh, well, not site, but uh, um, what is it called? X now. I have a, yeah, that's uh, right. a formerly handle, <laughs> right? Formerly Twitter, which uh, I think you can find me easily enough. That are my five hundred imitators. <laughs> uh, but a lot of my a lot of my kind of. Um, Incidental or more popular writing is now uh, is on the Substack that you mentioned. It's right, called uh, right. Post Post Liberal Order, um, and re- if readers are interested in these, I'm sorry, listeners are interested in these topics and want to become readers. Um, I, I I did post a few uh, a, a few essays on that website recently. Um, that in are fact called, we actually we talked about one of them. Yeah, they're, they're titled In Defense of Order. I don't know if yeah, the, yeah, those yeah. are the ones that you were talking about, and right. I, I, I thought, without tooting my horn, I thought those were, those were important essays to write because, if we're going to think in a sort of post-liberal form, we have to find, and we have to articulate powerfully, it seems to me, and consistently, the parts of our tradition that, in many ways, have been neglected by liberalism. So many people accuse me. Well, you don't like liberalism. You're an anti-American. You don't love America. You don't love the Constitution. I just find that preposterous. It's really a very narrow reading of our tradition to say it's all about individual liberty. In fact, I think it's a it's a very contemporary narrow mm-hmm. reading that that came out of the Cold War. And I really think that there is a deeper and wider and more profound tradition that. Uh, we have to rediscover. Yeah, so all these so-called conservatives who run around waving the the Federalist Papers actually, I think, have a just a, a really too blinkered view of our own founding and our tradition. So in those essays, I really try to revive the central importance of the idea of order as it informed the founding generations and has been a deeply important part of our tradition. And especially now in times when we just look around our world and we say, man, what is we're just living in the midst of disorder. Right. To talk about to, to li- be living in a time of disorder and saying what we need is more freedom, we need more liberty, 
is just that's just just as plain idiocy. That's just really, uh, you know, that's just that's just like saying, well, okay, you know, I I, I need, uh, I've got a screw, I got a tighten, so go bring me the hammer. You know, <laughs> you know we really just we we need to 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 to, right, to make right. sure our toolkit is uh, well supplied uh, and, and to use the appropriate tool for our time. Well, anyway, this has been a great uh, time with you, Patrick. Thanks for you know setting aside some time to talk to us like this and. And uh, we will definitely put some links in the show notes to the things you've mentioned. And and as we wrap up, I don't know if Tom and Glenn, you have anything you want to say as we conclude. Uh, I'm done. Uh, no, I I, <laughs> I enjoyed it very. Uh, <laughs> I enjoyed it very much. Thanks thanks for taking the time out. And I do look forward to the your bit on uh, the nature of humanity and technology. I'll definitely have more questions. So uh, maybe maybe we'll uh, bump bump you once that stuff comes running out as well. Great, great, right. Okay, yeah. I'll and be ready. I guess Thank I you. do have one thing to add. Pick a pub and I'll meet you there. Okay, <laughs> all right. All right, that'd be great. That sounds good. Take some yep. selfies of yourself and we'll yeah. post them. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is the beauty, beauty of localism. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, thanks a lot, folks, for listening to this episode of the Theology Podcast. Uh, you've made it all the way to the end, and now you get to listen to me talk about Patreon. This is your reward. Uh, we appreciate all the folks who do support us on Patreon. In fact, we've had a number of people who have uh jumped on board with our patreon here recently and uh it helps us pay for the things that we do here uh we don't take any money from it but it does go to pay for the people who make the show happen uh and uh, we appreciate your support that way and there'll be a link in the show notes if you'd like to uh, become one of our patreon supporters you can actually become a rousseau's assassin uh that's one of the categories (laughs) (laughs) anyway that's enough for now thanks a lot bye-bye bye-bye The Theology Podcast is a ministry of Trinity Reformed Church in Huntsville, Alabama. If you like this podcast, you might enjoy another one of our podcasts, Got a Minute, featuring Larson Hicks and Rich Lusk. Theology, philosophy, economics, politics, and more for normal people.